On the opening day of this retreat, I went for a bike ride. Had some time in the afternoon, and my partner and I just got these new hybrid bicycles. So we were happy to try them out on the country roads here. And I know of a pond maybe 10 miles down the road. And so we set off on these fancy city bikes down the road to this pond. And on the way there, it was quite hilly, a lot of steep ups and downs, and a lot of traffic, cars whizzing by us. So by the time we got to the pond, we're like, we made it, but that was a little scary. And so we thought we would go on the back roads. We Google mapped it, and there was a way it took, you know, by bicycle that took us on the off-roads, back roads. So I was listening to the instructions, and we're on the you know pavement, and then it says, turn right. And I look, and it's this dirt trail through the forest. And it says, go on this road for about a mile and then turn. So we thought, well, we have hybrid bikes, not really great for dirt trail, but, you know, it's only a mile. We can probably, we'll be fine. So we turn onto the dirt trail, and it gets muddier and rockier, and pretty soon the trail is washed out, and I'm looking at the clock, and I'm looking at my phone, which has lost reception by now, and we get about a mile down, and it says turn left onto another even more rocky, dirty, muddy trail. So we're thinking, this might be seven or eight miles of total trail in the wilderness. But then, by then, we had already gotten pretty far into the ride, so we thought, okay, here we go. So we're bumping along, and I'm praying that we get back in time for the opening night. And there's, oh my gosh, swamp, and we're just getting muddier and muddier, and our new bikes are just full of sand and mud. And then eventually, we got spit out right on Haas Hill, recognized Pleasant Street, and we were home. With enough time to shower, eat dinner, and then walk into this hall. And I really felt all this energy, ah, gotta get there. And then here we all are, and there was a, like, palpable vump in my body. And listening to the opening and the ceremony we created together, there was a deeper deepening and a kind of arriving of calm in the body. So you might think back to your Thursday, opening day of this retreat. How was it for you? Maybe driving to get here, maybe flying to get here, packing, unpacking, if this is a new place to you, all the information, orientation, getting all ready. And then here we are, landing in the hall. And now, even as I'm talking, three days, only three days of practice, how is it in the hall right now? Feeling into this collective state of tranquility, of peace, that we have created, that we are co-creating and manifesting here together. 
palpable, isn't it? So I want to share some thoughts tonight about calm, tranquility, peace. And the invitation is really to feel that in your body, in your mind, as I'm sharing these words. Really leaning into this quality of tranquility that is here, with us, right here. So we've been sharing some thoughts about the seven factors of awakening. And the Buddha offered this list in such a practical way. We don't need blind faith, nothing mystical happening here. Maybe there is. But in this list, it's also very pragmatic. What is the path leading to freedom of heart and mind? And the Buddha taught that these factors lead one into the other in a sequential fashion. So mindfulness as Matthew shared, the first full day, is this remembering, this here and now, this ordinary, simple presence that when developed, when it's strong, when there's continuity and momentum, this presence of mind, this awareness, leads into the ability to look closer at things as they are. We get interested And there's a kind of investigation that develops naturally. A rapprochement, right? A coming closer to, an intimacy with things. Very natural development of investigation. The second factor of enlightenment. And this investigation of dhammas, maybe you've seen in your own mind, it's exciting, It's energizing. We like seeing things clearly. And when we start to see reality more clearly, there's a kind of joy, an uplift, and a confidence that comes with that. Very natural energy arising. And then the seeing clearly that, oh, I can make good choices. When we make skillful decisions, we get happy. The 16th Gyawang Karmapa says this. He says, if you have 100% dedication and confidence in the teachings, then every living situation can be part of the practice. You can be living the practice instead of just doing it. Your life is your practice. And this list develops so naturally. You've seen it in your mind, I know. Narayan spoke so beautifully last night about this energy, how to work with energy skillfully in our lives, and then the uplift, the delight in the practice that comes. Ananda, who is a beloved character in the suttas, he was the Buddha's cousin and attendant for more than 40 years. So Ananda asks the Buddha, What is the reward and blessing of joy? And the Buddha says, rapture, Ananda. And Ananda says, what is the reward and blessing of rapture? 
And the Buddha says, tranquility, Ananda. Tranquility is the reward and blessing of rapture, or piti. So we see how these states arise naturally one from the other. So joy leading into calm, tranquility. The Pali word is pasadi, which I love because it kind of is onomatopoeic. It sounds like peace, doesn't it? Pasadi. There's a lot of S's and D's in there. Sha, calm, pasadi, calm, serenity. Can be a kind of contentment, composure. And in this way, we can see how sometimes joy, piti, rapture can feel very raucous and intense, as Narayan said. But we can see how with this coming of pasadi, there's a quietening down, and the happiness is more composed, tranquility, a deeper peace comes. So I sat my first three-month retreat here at IMS maybe about 10 years ago, almost exactly started 10 years ago, 2013. And on Tuesdays, way back in the day, they used to have special breakfast. So instead of just the usual oatmeal and fruit and things, they would have scrambled eggs and bagels. And so Tuesday, I was always filled with joy. (laughs) Oh, this is a joy based on conditions, <laughs> but still, pretty happy on Tuesdays. <laughs> so this was later on in the retreat. It was getting to be winter, and I remember one particular Tuesday morning, I knew there was going to be scrambled eggs, and there was a soft snow falling, just the sweetest kind of New England snow outside the window. And I went into the dining hall, and there was a place right in front of the windows, those coveted places, the windows where you could sit and watch the snowfall. So I could feel the delight mounting as I got my food and moved over to toast my bagel. And there was another yogi there standing beside me, and I could see just so much calm and grace in the way that he was buttering his bagel. Like, just his fingers on the knife were so graceful. And I felt this transmission of calm. It's like his calm magnified my calm. And it dropped. The joy and delight dropped into this deeper sense of like, oh, so gentle, this movement in the body. So soft, so graceful. And sitting down with the snow outside... It literally was probably the first time I had ever really understood calm in my life. This depth of serenity and tranquility that becomes available on the path. And then I remember for the rest of the retreat, I was using the noting technique. And I would say to myself, calm, calm. Because it was so foreign, I was sort of like, what is this experience that's happening? (laughs) Because doesn't it often feel so rare? 
that we really get to sink into this level of tranquility in the body, in the mind. We see how the conditions of our culture, our daily life, so overstimulating, so rushy, so busy. We're trained to rush. Often life feels like that bumpy ride over right through the forest, rushing to make sure you get there on time. Muddy, dirty, swampy. Matthew's description of life as an ongoing list of problems to solve. So this moving on our to-do list from one project to the next project to the next project, not so conducive to this settled back, this confidence in reality. We keep saying in the here, in the here, in the now, in the now, inviting a different orientation to the pace of life, to this experience of being a human. So I practice also in the Tibetan tradition and in their description of mindfulness of the body, there's a long, uh, beautiful, very poetic explanation of how energy is like wind in the body. Do you feel that sometimes? It's like gets really blustery in there. And in fact, they call it lungta or wind horse. It's like a horse, a wild horse galloping through our body. We're all like buffeted around and it's often very hard to find our ground. I was so struck by Narayan's quote yesterday when she was saying that the whole universe is humming. The whole universe is a Mongolian, is like Mongolian throat singing. Every star, every planet, every continent, every building Every person is vibrating along to the slow cosmic beat. And then I just read a little bit more about this today because I was so struck by it. So the scientists are now saying that that humming are gravitational waves created by massive black holes in universes 10 billion light years away. They're slowly merging. And as they merge, they generate ripples in space-time. And one scientist, Xavier Seaman, says, I like to think of it as a choir or an orchestra. That each black hole is generating a different note, and we're receiving the sum of those signals all at once. And I think the energy body feels that way. Have you felt that when you tune into the body, this like quiet hum? And when your wind horse is very strong, it can be like a really big hum vibration, kind of shaking. I think sometimes this restlessness, this buzzing kind of feeling gets very loud in retreat because it's so quiet here. And I've heard from some of you in your yogi jobs, those of you who are offering service for this retreat, how that shows up, that rushing, the toppling out of ourselves of always moving into the next moment, this kind of pace of things. 
we really feel that strongly when we're here and there's really nothing much to do. We see how driven we really are. And so cultivating this quietude, this calm, it might just be dropping in to that slower cosmic beat. A subtle, quieter kind of, you know, there's usually ripples on the water, but they don't have to be so big. They don't have to be so stormy. And through all of our actions here, whether it's stillness practice or movement practice or in-betweening, can we feel that sense of quietude underneath the waves? So Pasadi, it's magnified, just like the hum can be magnified here. Tranquility can also be magnified when we have mindfulness for it. We see what's here, just as is inviting in the beginning to feel this collective Pasadi, this collective peace. When we pay attention to it, it grows. So you might just notice it comes both in the body and in the mind. So how do we feel tranquility in the body? Sometimes it can feel just like a little more stillness. And it's relaxed, but it's different than just normal relaxation. It's like a pervading and steeping, a suffusing of the body with radiant peace. And it doesn't have to be that loud either. It can be a quiet, like subtle. We have to tune in to notice that it's here. Often we can feel that if we're doing mindfulness of breathing. Just this very quiet stillness actually in the body. And similarly in the mind, how do we notice this tranquility? There can be a kind of balance in the mind, a poise, a grace, spaciousness, calm. And here's the thing about calm in the mind is that you might actually have restlessness or worry or doubt or anything else going on that's unpleasant, that's difficult. But the way the mind knows it is with a measure of calm. So Gil Fransdahl suggests saying to yourself, it's just restlessness. Just sleepiness. And without making a big deal about whatever hindrance is arising or whatever difficulty is arising in the mind, we actually are cultivating calm even if we're bumping down that road and we don't quite know if we're going to get there on time, the mind can hold those conditions with a kind of peace. 
And maybe you felt that. I've heard some of you in the group say, it's so interesting. I'm having a hard time, you know, something planning or something's coming up. I'm missing my family, some difficult emotion. But it's actually not much of a problem. So it's this letting things be as they are, not taking them so personally. And we can cultivate calm right in the middle of the storm. That's how our life is our practice. We're not trying to get the conditions to be like this all the time. You can find that calm right in the middle of things. And if you look at the mind and see some peace there, there are other accompanying qualities that usually are here. In the Buddhist psychology, they say, pasadi comes with wieldiness of mind and proficiency, lightness, and even sincerity. So the first ones seem like they're related to calm, but how is sincerity related? And if we look, when the mind is calmed a little bit, if it's more tranquil, there's a kind of genuineness that can come out. A deeper honesty, actually, because when we're rushing or toppling forward, we're often just not quite aligned. So when we're settled back, there's a deep, it's beautiful, this very genuine kind of truth comes forward. So, of course, even as I'm talking about it, you might notice that we want it don't we? It feels so pleasant. We're really into this calm. How do we get it? That's what I'm here for. So it's important to notice how we're treating this calm. And you've probably heard that there's warnings and dangers of getting too caught up and attached to this feeling of peace. Because it's true, and I've seen it in myself and in many others, that we start to mistake the purpose of practice. And we think, oh, it's actually just all about being calm. Because we love that feeling so much. Oh, I'm coming here, and about two or three days in, I'll just feel this peace, and I'll have arrived. That's what it's about. And we forget that peace, calm, tranquility, it's also a constructed mind state that is impermanent and passing. So as with anything, we want to keep an attitude of wisdom about these feelings. Even though we like them, they're part of the path, they're onward leading, we need to hold it all with this measure of knowing, okay, this too, this too is happening. Equanimity as well. And the Buddha is very clear about this in the Satipatthana in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. He says, if the tranquility awakening factor is present in them, one knows the tranquility awakening factor is present in me. So it's simply that, mindfulness knowing Pasadi. We can stop there. We don't have to grab for more. Right? Or have all these narratives about how this is me that created this. Just, it's, it's present. If the tranquility factor is not present, one knows the tranquility factor isn't present in me. 
They know how the unarisen tranquility factor can arise and how the arisen tranquility factor can be perfected by development. So mindfulness, the first factor, knows if it's present or not. And then investigation, energy, interest, a kind of meditative intelligence that leads onward to develop calm, to learn its nature, to learn what leads to it, and also we don't become identified or ensnared by it. So what leads to this? Well, we see how the factors do, but there's other ways we can practice that can help us develop this sense of peace. So very simply, just moving differently. You might have noticed how we tend to rush. And again, this is a kind of training that we get in our daily life. So that wind horse is galloping, and we're rushing from one thing to the next, and it feels kind of futile here, doesn't it? If you catch yourself rushing, you're like, why am I rushing? (laughs) There's nothing really to do. But we have that kind of tendency. So to notice when we're toppling forward out of our center and to settle back. And we can use the support of others. You know, I was sitting here listening to you all come into the hall, and there was such a grace and a sense of poise of slowing down as you're coming into the hall. So that's why we do this in community, because we can support. Joseph Goldstein has this great story about how he was on retreat with Sharon Salzberg, you know, their old friends. And Sharon was the queen of moving slow. So all through the retreat, she's moving so slowly, right? Like the most slow without stopping. But how slow can you go? So Joseph, in a kind of playful way, they were doing walking meditation in the dining hall. And Joseph decided to compete with Sharon about how slow. Who can go slower? (laughs) I just always love that image of those two (laughs) creeping through the dining room. But it's true that the body and mind are so connected that deliberately slowing down just a little bit, it doesn't have to be that contrived, but just a little bit can help just slow that roll a little bit. In the Anapanasati Sutta, the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta, and I know many of you are doing that practice, The Buddha very clearly says we use the breath. We know the in-breath. We know the out-breath. We know it's long or short. And then we're calming the breath. We're calming the bodily formation. So we can do this deliberately. In-breath, calming. Out-breath, calming. I think it's interesting that the Lungta, this wind horse, is related to breath, wind in the body. So there's some wisdom to using breath meditation if it's part of your wheelhouse to deliberately calm that wind, letting it be natural, letting it be soft and gentle. 
And then nature. Doesn't nature teach us so much about tranquility? And we've been so lucky this week. It's been good weather, and I know lots of folks are walking, you know, doing walking meditation outside, doing rolling meditation outside. Hmm. I wanted to share a poem about going outside. This is called Love Note to Silence by Jose Alcantara. It's impossible to stay in bed when you're around. I love our morning tea, our walks in the woods, listening to all your crazy stories. I'm sorry I don't contribute much, that I mostly just nod and smile and sometimes scratch the back of my head. But listening to you is like the shore listening to the ocean. I'm swept clean of my detritus, my rotting organic matter, everything tossed there by the rude and the ugly. Here, let me grab my pen and notebook, my binoculars. Let me slip on my coat and shoes. The sandhill cranes are passing overhead. Let's go to the fields at the edge of town and make some noise. Love note to silence. Nature isn't always calm. But again, there's that sense of the deeper silence, the deeper stillness within all that is happening all around us, within us, everywhere. So another way to tune into this tranquility that's inside us all around, and I was talking to a group today about this, is to look at the space around things. So often we're drawn to what's in the room or what's in the mind, the whatever is catching our attention that's loud, a thought, an emotion, something distracting. But if we can settle back and look at space or look at the space around the thoughts, what's holding all of that? There's often insight into absence. And this tranquility, this peace, is a lot about the absence of things. You know, we've been here practicing. We don't see often the quiet calm that has already been growing in us because we're so caught up in whatever story we have. But there is tranquility here. So we notice the stillness underneath the agitation. And can there be even a kind of reverence for that? We tend to often be pretty devoted to our agitation. But can we have a deeper respect and devotion to what's underneath? A kind of quietude. A nothing to do and a nowhere to go. And I know we keep saying this. So this radical non-doing 
that practice is. You just keep showing up again and again, and there's nothing more to do. And we over-effort, and we strive, and we think there's lots to do. We make it a project, an enlightenment project. It's a pretty big project. I can tell you all about it. (laughs) And this is one of the biggest paradoxes in the practice because, of course, we want to progress. We want happiness. We have a deep longing. We have a lot of intentions here. So, of course, we are here. We're willing to do hard things because we care. So we're not getting rid of that. We need that deep longing. But the paradox is that at the same time, the path is about not doing it. About trusting that all we need is already here. So in Zen, this is called the backwards step. The great backwards step. That it's a kind of dismantling of all that activity, all the doing, all the getting, all the achieving, the letting go. Chogyam Trungpa says this, he says, we don't have to be ashamed of what we are. As sentient beings, we have wonderful backgrounds. These backgrounds may not be particularly enlightened or peaceful or intelligent. Nevertheless, we have soil good enough to cultivate. We can plant anything. So it's this deep trust that just now is enough. We don't have to get anything or fix anything or change anything. Things are just as they are. So one meditation instructions for this cultivation of tranquility is from Ajahn Amaro, this wonderful Thai forest monk. And he says this, when you sit down or begin a session, set your mind at ease. And then throughout your session, just notice Whatever brings you out of your ease. And this helps us ask the question, what is worth sacrificing your tranquility for? Is it rushing to the line in the dining hall? Some teacher, one of my teachers says that she used to rush and say, you know, she'd be second in line and worried that there wouldn't be enough for her. And we we have these. We have to see these patterns. These are deep conditions, right? A lot of conditioning inside. We have a lot of little voices in there that are, you know, fear and anxiety. Of course, this is being human. When we slow down, we really notice, oh, this is that subtle agitation that's toppling me out of my ease. For me, one of these, the biggest ones, is people-pleasing. And I've been on retreat, we're in silence, but I'm so concerned about what people are going to think. It's very agitating, right? Oh, I did that wrong, I did that wrong, I'm walking too fast, I turned the corner, I didn't pause. Like so much of that editing, just like really trying to get it right and look good. 
And it's so humbling to ask, like, is that worth losing my tranquility? When nobody else is noticing, they're all in their own world, and I'm here, like, really concerned. So this energetic noticing that sort of scatteredness that we get into, whatever we're sacrificing our calm for, and then settling back, often dropping down into a deeper place in the body. You can try this. You know, often we're kind of moving through the world from our head as a location. And how is it to move through the world from your belly as a location? Like your focal point. What if it's deeper in your body? I find it a little easier to settle back, to find more pasadi if I'm grounded, even in the feet, lower down in the body, closer to the earth. Many of you might know Narayan's lovely little book. It has all of these lovely images, drawings that she made, and it is such a deep teaching. When walking, just walk. When standing, just stand. There's all these activities. We can apply this to anything. When eating, just eat. It's pretty hard to be leaning out and toppling out of ourselves and planning and things if we're just standing or just walking. That invitation to stay very simple. When rolling, just roll. When sleeping, just sleep. When bumping along a bumpy trail, just bump along a bumpy trail. So what are these benefits? I mean, we can feel them, partly just because it feels good, we like it, but how does this calm or tranquility lead us along the path? So one of the major benefits is when we're cultivating this kind of peace inside is that it allows for a lot of healing to happen. All of the broken parts, all of the unfinished business, the splintered parts, there's a deeper space that opens for metabolizing and integrating what's happening if there's kind of stillness in the body and then the mind. So healing can occur. Also, this calm and composure, it helps us see clearly. And isn't it like the water, when it's all stirred up, it's harder to see to the bottom. But when things have settled, it's a calm day, calm ocean. You can look down through the depths and see, clear seeing. Also, a mind that has tranquility has less desire, has less agitation. So when the mind is free of clinging, it's free of agitation. And this means it's mostly free. (laughs) It really settled all of it. And when there's this quietude and this calm, it leads on to the next awakening factor. 
which you'll hear about tomorrow. I'll just say quickly, the Pali word is samadhi. It's very related to calm as a kind of gathering composure, which then leads on to equanimity and eventually really liberating wisdom. And then the last piece, it's interesting because it might not always feel this way, but calm is actually altruistic. Because our calm, our tranquility, it's like a osmosis. We're so interrelated and connecting, we're always resonating and attuning with each other so that one calm body can benefit the room. It changes the water we're swimming in. And so, it's so funny, Pasadi. Often this one is overlooked in this list. There's a lot of jazzy factors in this list, right? We hear about energy and joy, and then we're going to hear about samadhi, composure, equanimity. They're pretty fancy. And we often forget about calm, this quiet one in the middle. And so much so that I'll tell you, I got all mixed up when we were figuring out our themes for our talks. And I wrote a whole talk on samadhi, <laughs> thinking that I was sort of writing about fasadi, but I wasn't. It's like we skip over to get into the really fancy concentration. So it's this quiet one in between joy and this gatheredness, this composure. But over time, as we see when we practice, if we want samadhi too much, we forget about the calm it's actually an obstacle to developing that focus of mind. So we need this tranquility first, this kind of letting go, this freedom from agitation that can then usher in. It's like, oh, I don't even care about getting concentrated. And there can be a more invitation to deepening along the path through samadhi, through equanimity. So it's beautiful the way these factors lead one into the other. Hmm. There's so many poems and it's hard to choose. Let's see. Well, maybe I'll give you two. Is that okay? This one is called What Stillness. Lily pads ripple in summer breeze as if they bloomed for me. Revelation white clouds float through a divine blue sky. No human voices break the stillness of this hilltop pond where I come to forget the foolishness of Homo sapiens. Where a trout leaps from the lake Flashes shining down, opening a glimpse into the world below the surface. My dog, wet from her swim between the visible and hidden, shakes dots of sparkling light from her coat, forming a watery aura. What sunlight does to water, stillness does to us. <laughs> 
And then just to finish with this, I just discovered this poet today. I'm really touched by him. He's named Rafael Jesus Gonzalez. And he offers all of his poems in both English and in Spanish. Because he's born and raised on the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. And he says, because I grew up bicultural and bilingual, I'm consequently heir to two muses. My work is almost all discrete pieces in two tongues. And when possible, I prefer to publish it as it was written in both Spanish and English. So these are two poems, not necessarily translations of one and the other. But I think what this points to is the movement in the stillness and the stillness in the movement. And sometimes the calm and tranquility can feel like that liminal space, a kind of borderlands. So this is Rafael Jesus Gonzalez. I'll read it first in Spanish and then in English. Tanka de gruya origami. Se dice que si doblas mil grullas de papel, se cumplirá de deseo, tu deseo. Por la paz, por la paz, felizmente me pasaría el resto de mis días doblando. Origami crane tanka. It's said that if you fold 1,000 paper cranes, your wish will come true. For peace, for peace, I would gladly spend the rest of my days folding. For peace, I would gladly spend the rest of my days folding. So we can just sit together for a moment or two and let the word settle.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.